Welcome into another Q&A, Questions in Alcohol, where we talk about all things alcohol, whether it's the drinks, the uh, art, the food in Kentucky and beyond. And today we're going to be in Kentucky talking with Castle and Key Distillery out uh, near Frankfort, Kentucky. Uh, but remember, you can find us at hopspirits.com. We're also on social media at hopspirits, all one word, on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. We also have a YouTube page where you can catch all of these episodes and all of our other fun things that we do, like our taste test there as well. Like I said, we're here with, uh, we're staying in Kentucky this week, and we're talking with Brett Connors, the head blender, and as he likes to say, or maybe other people like to say, the whiskey wizard at Castle and Key Distillery. Welcome in, Brett. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're looking forward to it. Now, now, do you do do you just willingly tell people you're the whiskey wizard, or, or did that kind of come about? Um, I think a little bit of both. You know, you know, I've always been kind of uh, nerd leaning in my personal preferences and hobbies, and. Uh, you know, I think spirits is kind of like the ultimate form of that interest. You know, you're kind of making potions. It's creative. It's magic in a way. There's a lot of art involved. And, um, you know, I'm, we're not always the biggest fans of traditional titles unless I need something. Then it's like director of whatever, <laughs> just so people email you back. But, you know, I think the reality is, you know, we, we have a pretty big family here. And uh, yeah, we keep it laid back with our titling. Uh, hey, nothing, nothing wrong with that, and it's also just a sign of, of some fun things, and and also your role as a head blender. I mean, you kind of do some magic things that that happen. You know, I always like to say, I, I joke with some folks, you're like a mad scientist in a way, <laughs> in a way, you know, or at least that's how I always picture it. Like sitting in the back, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and and then something uh, amazing comes out. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that kind of uh, the back end work. You know, our job as on the blending team is to highlight the work of the rest of the distillery, which is very scientific and very, you know, industrially oriented. Um, you know, we just get to do the art of it, which is a little bit of uh, the fun part. So, Well, and then, you know, you, you've had kind of uh, an interesting career, you know, read, reading up about you. Can you tell a little bit about your, yourself and kind of just your background? Yeah, I mean, I think my background, uh, you know, I've always been interested in spirits and winemaking. And then when I was in college at the University of George Mason, um, I started working in, you know, more like casual fine dining with a great restaurant corporation up in D.C., great American restaurants. And then um, after I went to graduate school uh, at the University of Malta in conjunction with George Mason, I moved to Kentucky to chase a brunette. And then I just started working in restaurants again. You know, it pays really well. I think, you know, if you haven't done food service, like professionally, it teaches you a lot of patience and people skills and, you know, just conversational skills um, and teaches you how to want to work too. Because if you don't like it, well, you don't make great money. Um, and then through that, you know, I ended up meeting Will and Wes through kind of happenstance and started initially with Castle and Key, more on the hospitality development side, you know, the bar developmental side, um, working on a lot of our historical documentation, our historical tax credit documents and application. Um, and then just through it being a startup, I had a lot of secondary opportunities to get more involved in product and product development and the other things I'm kind of interested in. So, uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride. Uh, I guess I started planning tours and I ended up blending whiskey, which is definitely something I'm better at than tourism planning. I'm not great at it, frankly. <laughs> well, I mean, I was, I was going to say, I mean, you literally, cause you kind of, like you said, you got in at the start uh, when Castle and Key was, you know, reborn, you know, the distillery was, was brought back to life. I mean, and now you're, you're, you're the head blender. I mean, what's that been like to see your role evolve and kind of the evolution of not just what you do, but also kind of what Castle and Key has been able to do. 
Man, I'm I'm just a huge fan after experiencing this. You know, I couldn't be a bigger advocate for, you know, taking a leap of faith with like a startup or a more entrepreneurial perspective, especially in your 20s. You know, you have a lot of life ahead of you. So, you know, I was kind of smart enough in my mid-20s to realize that it's okay to take a pretty big risk. You know, so I left a, you know, wonderful restaurant company to work with, Bluegrass Hospitality in Central Kentucky. And um, I just took a chance kind of on some on Will and West, the founding partners of Castle and Key, and I took a chance on myself. Um, and, you know, they had already built a really great team with, like, our previous master seller, Marianne Eves, who was, you know, phenomenally gifted and, like, had a ton of industry experience. Um, but the greatest part about a startup is you're often understaffed, right? Um, so there was a, everybody had to do everything, regardless of if you knew what you were doing or not. You know, so there's a lot of opportunity for education and hands-on learning and just... Um, a lot of great directionality, I guess. So if you show aptitude for something, you could take more ownership and you could grab more responsibility that in a big corporation, you're just not going to have that luxury. Um, so I just, I like to think I, I work pretty hard. You know, I'm, I don't think I'm the smartest person in the industry. That's not even close. Um, but I do think I work pretty hard. So uh, just grabbing the opportunities that were presented to me. Uh, maybe opportunistic, I guess, is like another good word, not in a negative way. But, um, you know, and as we added team members, you know, I think we added a lot of skilled staff and I tried to listen and learn where I could and um, ended up getting into a position where I have kind of my dream job, which is it could have not worked out either. And I would have been totally happy going back to the restaurant world. Um, but yeah, I, if you're in your 20s and you're listening to this, uh, take a chance. If you're in your 40s and you're listening to this, take a chance. <laughs> yeah, life's too boring to do something you're not happy with. Well, you, and, you, and you touched on it too, you know, having that, that hospitality background, working in that, that industry, you know, it's kind of what you do now as a blender, just a different kitchen, so, so to speak. And, and do you ever yeah. kind of, because I know you, you enjoyed, uh, like you said, that, that type of, of world, but obviously you're, you're not dealing with food per se, uh, but, but you're definitely in a kitchen getting to, to cook up some, some interesting things. Yeah, you're still dealing with spirits in a way, but I think at the end of the day, like the reality is we're not selling like a neutral widget, right? Like we're not a nail company or like, you know, we don't sell fenders, like we sell experience. And I think, and I think having a background in hospitality teaches you what you're doing is you're, it's kind of a mixture of like theater and performance and social interaction. And it, it gets to be just a moment in time. And I think that's what, you know, we try to bottle with our team as well. It's not only are we selling you a really wonderful whiskey, we're selling you an opportunity to connect with others or to connect with history, to connect with experientially just something you're interested in. Um, and I think that's, you know, what we're really prideful about. Like, obviously we're a whiskey company first and foremost, but, you know, in a lot of ways we're selling experience and we're selling hospitality and we're selling um, storytelling at the same time. And I think, you know, working in food and beverage gives you an opportunity to get really good at that stuff. So, you know, the product side, while it's hard to learn, is I think easier to learn than the soft skills of how to talk to people. <laughs> like, so, yeah. No, that, that, that is very true. Be, being able to, to actually do something by yourself is one thing. To actually go out in front of people and, and deal with the public at large can be a quite daunting task. And, and you also touched about the, kind of the history and the the storytelling. I mean, you are an art history degree. It's one yeah. of your one of your degrees. You're you're a man of, of many talents. 
one, how does an art history guy get, get into whiskey? And then two, you did put that degree to good use w- working there and getting helping with, like you mentioned, the historical uh, designations. You guys got the National Register of Historical Placing listings and things like that. Yeah. Man, I think, you know, I did art history as an undergrad because I love art and I love history and, you know, I love the kind of interwoven connectivity of like cultural aspects of both of those things. But the reality was I wasn't, again, smart enough to get a PhD in it. (laughs) Um, You know, I I don't speak any second languages well. Um, I speak some German abysmally. Uh, But I think the reality is like I thought I wanted to do museum curation. It just wasn't, I quickly realized the right fit for me. But that didn't mean that I wanted to be completely you know, absolved of that interest or passion. Um, you know, I grew up in a household where we collected antiques my entire life. We collected art. My dad collected jewelry. He didn't wear a single piece of it, but he loved buying it, right? And I think that kind of, that passion was like just forged in me from a really early age. So the second I came on site and saw, you know, a castle and key where it just, it's physically around you in a way where I, you know, I'm a firm believer that, that places have power and, you know, places have like a feeling to them. And when you walk on 113 acres and there's a massive limestone castle that was built in the 1800s that greets you as you come down a bend in kind of the middle of nowhere, central Kentucky, um, it's striking. And, you know, with historical preservation, I think it deserves to be preserved. It deserves to be honored and just respected in a way that, you know, there's thousands of people that worked here for decades. And for them to not have the ability to continue the legacy or their contributions to the state of Kentucky is something that I'm just not a fan of, you know, and I think art history is both the appreciation of art and art introspectives, but also preservation perspectives. Um, You know, losing history is a really bad thing. Um, You know, accurately retelling history is just as important, though. You know, I think there's a desire to often spin history in creative ways, and that's just never something that we were a fan of. Well, and you you touched on it, too, you know, the, the, the history out there, is amazing. Can you t- talk a little bit about, you know, the site that is now the Castle and Key Distillery yeah. and just it's it's long, long history while Castle and Key's only been there for, you know, a short time in the whole big picture. Uh, the, yeah. the site's been around for a while. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, currently we are barely a chapter in the history of the site. You know, we hope through the decisions we're making to be a long term, uh, a long term, maybe like a full couple chapters in our history. But the reality is, you know, historically, the site started as a distillery in the early 1800s as a farmer miller distiller, a grist mill distiller. You know, somebody was turning their excess grains into what we think of as moonshine. Then through that course of time, you see some small commercial distilleries start to develop. But then the real growth of the site and kind of even our hospitality's perspective is still kind of pinned to what E.H. Taylor achieved here in the 1880s. You know, E.H. Taylor is a monolith. He starts in banking, through banking, find commodities trading. And then he goes on to work for Old Crow. He builds the Hermitage. He goes up the river into, uh, on the Kentucky River into Frankfurt and builds OFC, which becomes modern-day Buffalo Trace. He's involved at, up at Old Oscar Pepper. That becomes modern-day Woodford Reserve. Um, he just has an impressive legacy of development and creativity and entrepreneurship and pushing the industry forward to the point where when he comes here in the 1880s, he wants to do something no one had seen before. You know, at that point, distillers were functional. You made whiskey and you hopefully didn't die while doing it, which is our number one goal here um, (laughs) from a safety perspective. But, you know, I think the reality is, you know, with the H. Taylor's vision, he was frustrated by our lack of competitiveness against other spirits. You know, I know on your podcast and show that you discuss a lot of different categories of goods. 
And the reality is at that point in time, bourbon was the cheapest and ugliest product you could drink. You know, if you were of the American affluent, you drank cognacs, brandies, scotches, Udavis, uh, rye, rum were all seen as higher quality than what we produced. I mean, Irish whiskey, Canadian whiskey. Um, and it frustrated E.H. Taylor. You know, he learned a lot of his distillation techniques in Europe. Um, so he thought it was unfair if he was using a lot of the same technological advancements that we weren't able to price appropriately or compete against those goods. So his vision was marketing. You know, he built a rail line all the way from Frankfurt to our site. He commissioned private rail cars from New Orleans, Chicago, New York to bring out guests and visitors. You know, even uh, our hospitality space that we're still utilizing in the modern era was a train depot that he built named Taylorton Station, where we now, you can grab a cocktail or use the bathroom in it, it's great. Um, you know, he built massive pleasure gardens on site. He built a sunken garden on site. His vision was, if you're making a luxury good, you should be advertising that, you know? So he was one of the first to use lithographic images of his distillery to show you how bougie and fancy it was. <laughs> um, you know, even in the modern era, you know, I think of a brand, you know, like LVMH, like when you own like Louis Vuitton and Moet Hennessy and all these other brands, like their advertisement is like somebody rolling up in a Bugatti, like drinking champagne, it's more of an aspirational good. You know, we try to price a little bit more affordably so people can grab it. But, uh, you know, I drive a Honda Accord, man. That's not necessarily our aesthetic. But, you know, I think the reality is, uh, you know, his vision was to make it premium um, and to make it accessible. So, you know, we even in our modern hospitality program was how do you get the doors open and how do you let people experientially engage with your site? You know, I think that's the way you build long-term consumers is it's not just about what's in the bottle. As a blender, I think it's a lot of about what's in the bottle, but it's subsequently about, you know, are you giving people a good time? Do you, how do you make them care about what you're doing? Uh, yeah. uh, it, then, it's an amazing history there. And, and you touched on it too with the, the gardens, the, 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 yeah. just the amazing site that is the distillery. When people go out there and they can tour it, what can they actually see? Um, because it's pretty breathtaking, you know, from, from everything that, that I have witnessed. Um, I'm still, my breath's still taken away. Like on a pretty day like this, it's going to be in the seventies. I walked on site and, you know, I, I woke up late. I'm like answering emails. I'm feeling frantic. I step on site and it just melts away from you. Like you just realize that you work in one of the prettiest places in Kentucky. Uh, but the site's open now Thursday through Sunday. Um, we kind of treat it like a public park. If you want to just come on site, you know, we have two little bar windows you can walk up to, grab a drink, sit by the creek, enjoy the weather. You're welcome to bring food if you want a picnic. You just can't bring alcohol because, like, the government cares um, about you bringing <laughs> Those darn alcohol. Law. Yeah, dude, I, I mean, it's, ta it's really taxes, if we want to be frank. But, um, yeah, so, you know, we will provide the alcohol if you want to buy a drink. But, you know, you can sit by the creek, enjoy the weather. Um, so you can see, you know, we have a quarter-mile-long botanical trail, you can enjoy the Spring House, which has existed since the late 1800s. Um, it's a Roman-style bathhouse or Paris-style, which is just gorgeous. We have a cocktail garden around that. We also have our boiler room, which is our primary like retail space and visitor center. So I think our retail team does an amazing job. If you ever need to buy anybody a present um, or you just want to get a brand new barber jacket, you know they do a heck of a job stocking that space with just interesting and cool merchandise and apparel and things to drink. You know, we release a lot of single barrels there of rye whiskey. So um, I think there was one that just dropped this week, too. So if you're popping through Kentucky and you want a really special bottle of rye whiskey, we tend to have a couple on site, too. Um, on the tour side, you know, we're doing kind of an open campus thing now that we've been tweaking and working on. 
Um, you know, the goal was to expand access to the facility, uh, but frankly, we're seeing more guests and visitors than we ever expected. So we're still playing with that a little bit. I think come June, July, you might see a more traditional tour structure put back in place as well. Um, but currently, you know, I think it's like 10 bucks, you get a half ounce pour and you can walk through production, see some of the gardens, grounds. It's kind of a station self-guided experience a little bit. Um, you know, I think our goal has always been to layer different guest experiences where if you want to come out and do, a, we throw great cocktail parties. We do, you know, garden tastings with John Karloftis who did our garden, but also just pop in and say hi. You know, we want to make it where you can experience the distillery in different ways. Well, and you touched on it too with, you know, kind of the products that you, you all have. And, you know, in addition to being a beautiful location, you, you have been able to put out some amazing products. You just, Thank you. you know, the, the bourbon just, just launched uh, recently with uh, the, the first one. I believe the second one's coming out here in May. Um, and oh, it's before it dropped just, it dropped now. It sold okay. out so quickly and everybody was flipping out on us. So uh, we, we rushed it to market. We got our team worked some overtime. We got it labeled up and, um, yeah, batch two is hitting shelves like currently. So there we go. There we go. And then, you know, how's it been to be part of the, those, that, that process to get the restoration rye out and now the, the bourbon as well, because, you know, those were the, the kind of the quote unquote last things that you guys were finally able to, to get out. Oh man, stressful. Um, you know, I guess from a PR side, I'm supposed to talk about how like joyful it is. I think it's joyful now. Um, but, you know, working on the blend side, you know, with final product and determination and package, um, it's stressful. You know, I think a lot of it is myself and our, my co-blender that I work with a lot, John Brown, who's the head of quality in R&D. Um, there's a lot of pressure on us to not mess it up, you know, because I think, you know, it would be a falsehood to say that we're not working with something already beautiful. You know, you're kind of given the keys to something really special. And, you know, our distillery team works so hard. They've worked so hard for really over six years now. You know, we've had a lot of different individuals involved with the site over time. So you're dealing with the history of a lot of people's efforts. Um, you know, and the distillation side is very scientific. Our warehouse team works so hard. The logistics team works really hard. So I think our job is just to highlight their work. Um, you know, I think there's like a personality thing too, where it's like neither of us really like to be interviewed. Thank you for interviewing us. That's like a different comment. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll, we'll buy an education. <laughs> no, no. We, well, you know, I love it because I get to highlight our team's efforts, right? You know, I think that's what's so special about being an independently owned or family run distillery. Um, you know, we try to, we don't have a lot of ego here. You know, the goal is to be really respectful of everybody's contributions. We have over a hundred staff and I think Restoration Rye, even the label for that bottle is indicative of the contributions that dozens of individuals have made over the course of this project. So when I say stressful about product release, it's more, are we doing everybody's efforts justice in the bottling? Um, you know, and I think that's what's stressful about it for us is you know, where I think me and John are, you know, not to be unhumble, I think we're good at what we do, but it's also, we want to make sure everybody's appreciative of the work of our whole team. Um, it's also a joyous. I mean, this is the first product determined completely by our team that's been released from Castle and Key in over five decades. So you have kind of a secondary tier of like historical pressure, right? Like the ghost of E.H. Taylor, like, yeah, like the ghost of E.H. Taylor waking me up in the middle of the night is like legitimate fear I have. Um, but I think it's, it's that too. It's like, this is a lot of people have staked their livelihoods and life on this facility. You know, 
I'm not the only one. You know, I left a great job and with a great company to come here. And I think that's kind of what we are as a team, as a group of dreamers, you know, where people who have coalesced and all seen the same vision and same opportunity um, and to get that finally in a bottle is a big deal. And for it to be aged the way it is, you know, that's a huge credit to our team's patience. And, you know, I always love when consumers, like we'd launch a new product and on Instagram, it'd be like, we have a new gin coming out. And the first comment is always, when's the bourbon going to be ready? <laughs> um, it's like summer music series. When's the bourbon going to be ready? Um, so I think we have, we bear a big responsibility to our fan base and to our consumers and everyone who's supported us for decades. So, or a decade basically. Um, yeah, so stressful, but also really exciting. Both. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that, and that's. Just, I mean, but that is the process, especially when, you know, this is this. These were your first bourbon re- releases, and you know, the restoration rye. You know, I've I've actually had the chances to to try those over the over time, and I, I love those. The, the one thing w- with with the with that process is you guys do batch releases. You know, like one, yeah. two, or three. Why, why kind of go that route? And, and can you talk a little bit about the the restoration rye as well? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, batch dynamic releases, you know, making sure that every batch is a unique flavor profile and variant and just special. It was really our way to fight. And, you know, I think when you look at whiskey and the growth of the industry, you know, there's a lot of really large facilities. Um, You know, even in the 90s, you either made a barrel whiskey a day or you made a couple thousand, right? So you have these big corporations um, that have better funding. You know, they have massive marketing teams. They have huge budgets. They, have, they make great whiskey. Like, that's not even a criticism. Like, some of these facilities like Heaven Hill or even, you know, Sazerac, Wild Turkey, like, they all make great bourbon. And they've been doing it for a hell of a long time. So as a newcomer to that industry, you know, our view is like, well, how do you compete against that? It's like you have a single-A baseball team and every week you're playing the, you know, New York uh, Yankees from the 90s. Like, it's not necessarily like the evenest of playing fields. So, you know, we kind of looked at what you see in like viticulture, winemaking, where you have that as well. You have these massive family brands like the Jackson family or, you know, what the Wagners have done with like Camus and their brands. But you also have some boutique brands that aren't necessarily that big. They don't have the same marketing budget. They're not paying Mila Kunis or Matthew McConaughey to represent them. Um, We don't have that kind of money, man. If they want to do it for free, like they're welcome to hit us up. Um, (laughs) But we don't have like Chrysler money to pay Matthew McConaughey. Um, And I think our view was making sure that each batch was dynamic, gets to show off our blending ability. It gets to show off our whiskey dynamic. Um, You know, so every batch is going to be a little bit unique, but it's also we are allowing our barrels to be what they want to be. You know, when you're releasing kind of a, a, a flagship good, um, you know, for a large brand, when you're selling a million cases, you want them all to taste the same. So you're normally trying to make your batches represent an idealized batch. You know, like I think Buffalo Trace is all meant to taste like batch one or batch two of Buffalo Trace ever produced, where we were a young distillery. So the idea of making older whiskey taste like our first batch that was younger or not allowing it to be itself just wasn't the right fit for us. So there's also some seasonality to it. Uh, you know, we can't outspend, but I think we can outwork. So um, every batch is a little bit different. So last year with our Restoration Rye, we released three batches. Um, you know, batch three is what you're going to probably see most of currently. It's a, um awesome whiskey. I think it ended up being 105 improved, tons of stone fruit, really grain bright. Um, rye is always going to be minimum three and a half years old. Bourbon's always a minimum of four. Weeded bourbon's a minimum of five. 
and then we're going to get those older as time goes on as well. Um, batch one rye whiskey that's coming out, uh, restoration rye this year is probably my favorite batch we blended. Um, it's a small batch, only 40 barrels, but it ended up being 113 in proof. Hmm. Nice. It is a monster. It is gorgeous. It is, and all, we're also charging the same amount for it. Um, we do this crazy thing where we proof it wherever we like it, and then we just we just charge the same amount. It's crazy. I know. It's, uh, hey, um, I love it. I love it. And, and, and are, I'm guessing, are you taking the same approach, too, with, like, the bourbon and, and the others, that kind of batch release and, and, and so forth? Yeah, batch releases. I mean, eventually with bourbon, you'll see some bottle and bond probably. You'll probably see some single barrels at some point. You know, with the early batches of bourbon, um, we're actually seeing some pretty substantial proof loss in the warehouse. You know, with warehouse B being so long, high airflow, high humidity, uh, we're losing a lot of proof. You know, we entered historically uh, low around like 107, which is more pertinent to the industry prior to like the 90s and aughts. Um, you know, like while Turkey used to enter that low, Michter's enters that low, there's a lot of other brands that like that low entry. Uh, but with our particular warehouse climate, we actually lose a lot of proof. So um, our five-year-old was all under 100 proof, almost unanimously. Um, these first two batches are a great example of that. When we dumped them, they were at barrel strength 100.5. Oh, wow. So um, we ended up only adding a tiny little bit of water. Um, the first batch ended up being 98 in proof. The second batch ended up being 99 in proof. So I think bonded is going to take us a little bit until we get up into the third and fourth floor to be able to have whiskey that is consistently higher than 100 proof. Because uh, if you try to bond a whiskey and you dump it and it shows up at 98 proof, you're in a really bad situation. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, um, doesn't quite work out. <laughs> it's like bonded anymore, uh, which is kind of crazy. But yeah, so I think we have a lot of intention to do some cool stuff in the future. But these first two batches of bourbon, super different. You know, I think batch one is a crowd pleaser. Uh, it just... Big honeycomb, yeast roll, doughy, round, easy drinking. Uh, batch two is a little bit more of a whiskey kind of sore, a little bit more nuanced, um, you know, more dark fruit, more stri spice structure, more tannic compounding on the back end. So it's just a really full, funky, complex, round whiskey. Um, but they're both great. And I think they're going to make a bunch of different people really happy. Well, and then in addition to, you know, the whiskey and the, the rye you, or the bourbon and the rye, you also, like you said, you have gin, you have a vodka. I mean... Um, so you guys kind of round out the whole portfolio there too. We want to, we want to be every bottle on your bar cart, right? You know, when you have friends over, you know, I think our bottles are so great. And I think vodka and gin allows us to just show off our team's distillation ability. You know, the thing I'm most prideful on site is our production team. You know, I think we have some of the best distillers in the nation on site. Um, we have a really, really great R and D team. And again, you know, we, we can't outspend, but we, we do our best outwork. Um, so I think that side of the site works really hard to be creative and thoughtful. Um, you know, we don't cut any corners. You know, we're not buying gray neutral spirit. We distill everything from scratch. Um, that's probably not the best financial decision to make. It's not, you know, the more, the easiest to grow or scale it. But I think it, it just shows off that we're serious. You know, I always say fanatical attention to detail. Um, you know, if we're going to do something, we want to do every little bit of it ourselves. And I think that's not as common in the industry as it could be. Um, you know, there are some people that do a really good, great job of that. You know, I always think of like, um, like the Neely family or like, you know, some of these other distilleries that are just really doing a great job um, taking ownership of their totality of process. Um, so, you know, lots of good people are doing good stuff like us. But so, yeah, drink other people's bourbon, too. 
that's I guess that's not what I'm supposed to do from a PR standpoint. But <laughs> you, the, I, you know, I, this was Brett's last interview allowed. It. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's who we are too. The whiskey industry as a whole is making, I think we're in the golden era. Everybody's making some really great stuff. So, um, you know, I think you should drink our bourbon. We obviously are about to sell out of it again. So um, if it's not on shelf, there's, you know, drink some rye whiskey or, you know, try somebody else's stuff too. Well, and the beauty too of, of like where we are in Kentucky is you can come here, you can go to your your place, you can go up the road to Buffalo Trace, you can go down the road to Woodford. I mean, you can go to so many different places and check out so many different things and just kind of experience it all and see how, one, they're similar, but two, they're different. And I, and I love that. And, and you kind of touched on it, too. You know, the bourbons are, are probably going to be very hard to find for a while. Um, but where can folks find um, y- y'all's products, uh, in addition to, obviously, visiting the distillery? Yeah, so I always recommend checking online on our website. We're distributed to 17 states. So, you know, all those states uh, get some product. You know, the ones that we've been in longer, you know, the Georgia, Tennessee, Indiana's of the world, they tend to get pretty good volume releases. Um, we're in some new states, but, you know, they'll get bigger releases as time goes on. Um, the distillery is a great place to come. If you're down in the area, you know, we try to always have something creative down here. It might be a rye single barrel or, you know, some like library batches of gin or something cool. Um, you know, bourbon's just tough because we just don't have a lot of it. Um, so, you know, we do 100 bottles during the month of April. Um, and I think Derby weekend, it wouldn't surprise me if we have some too. But, you know, we do 100 bottles Thursday through Saturday morning. Um, first come, first serve, one bottle per person. Um, so that's always an opportunity. But I always say, you know, we're a big fan of our retail partners. You know, check online, you know, look on their Facebook pages. If you see one of us speaking, there might be product there. Um, you know, recently I did like a tasting at, you know, a liquor barn. We did a bottle signing. Um, they had set back a ton of products. I bought a bottle. I don't have enough in my personal <laughs> collection. So, you know, I was really gracious that they did that because, you know, it gives people the opportunity to try it. Uh, the only rule is if you find our bourbon, please, God, open it. Don't put it on a shelf. Crack it open. We work really hard. Don't sell it. If we wanted to write you a check, we'd write you a check. Um, open it, drink it, enjoy it, share it. You know, I think that's all we ask if you do find a bottle. Well, and those bottles are, are, are very pretty. They stand out, and, and I love the work. Like you said, it's a it's a full team effort from what you know yeah. from the start to the finish, and and, and it shows through. And then I, I guess I'll, I'll wrap it up with what's next for y'all. Obviously, I know some new releases are, are coming down the pipeline, but what what can you tell that won't get you you know kicked off and not allowed to speak ever again? <laughs> oh man, I like I, I really try to thread the needle with that. Um, you know, it is what it is. No, our marketing team is uh, is as well some of my favorite people on staff so they go i can't believe you said that but we love you and you know i love them too so uh upcoming stuff man we're excited we're going into a blending cycle so after derby um i have a little vacation planned which i desperately need and then uh, myself and john brown and our sensory team are going to start working through a lot of inventory to look at fall releases um we're probably going to start dabbling with a little weeded bourbon it's about to hit five years old in fall so if we can get together a batch we're really excited about, it wouldn't surprise me if you see a little bit of weeded bourbon this fall at five years old. Awesome. Um, you know, you might see some more batches of bourbon TBD. Um, I know we might have a secret third batch that's about to release sometime in the summer. Uh, keep your eyes out for that. It's, it's really tasty. Um, you know, you'll probably see some more batches this fall for bourbon. Um, you might see another batch of rye, that one that I mentioned earlier, batch one from 2022. Um, it's probably going to hit kind of in the summer. 
it's going to be gorgeous for the summer. Tons of stone fruit, lots of baked cinnamon, just super floral. Um, it's probably my favorite rye we've blended so far, and it's not a big batch. It's only 40 barrels. So if you see that one, you're going to want to snatch it up pretty quick. Um, more single barrels, uh, more gin. So, you know, we just launched one of my favorite gins we've ever done is our spring uh, rise, R-I-S-E, uh, from this year. It's like rose petal, tarragon, green cardamom, green peppercorn. It is just gorgeous. So um, keep buying and drinking our products and supporting us, and we can keep doing weirder and cooler stuff. So I love, I love it. I love it. And, 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 and uh, like I said earlier, folks, if you can, get out there, check out the facility. Like I said, it is absolutely beautiful. And Brett, this was a, a blast, and I really appreciate it. No, thank you for your time. This has been a joy to speak with you guys. And, uh, yeah, hopefully all your listeners go out and buy some product and uh, see what we're doing. And, and it, that is also well worth it, too. I forgot to say that part. That part is also well worth it, and I have enjoyed everything I've gotten to try. Thank you.